0: Big
1: stories, big
0: guests, the big
1: picture. Afternoons with Rob breakenridge Weekdays, twelve thirty to three,
2: seven seventy. CHQR. Well, welcome back. Well, over hundred thousand uh, school kids in Calgary returning to school today. It is the first of September, you know I think some kids might feel you know. At least wait till after Labor Day. Anyway, it is back to school for most kids in Calgary today. And, and look, I mean, that, that's, that's where kids should be. You know, we, we were in a similar situation uh, last September that, okay, we're going to start uh, the year off with kids back in class and we'll see how it goes. And obviously last year presented some challenges and there were a lot of disruptions, either the disruption of having to quarantine or the disruption of having in-person learning uh, shut down for a while. So it's a really jarring year, I think, in a lot of ways for kids. And so it's, I don't know, I don't know what this year has in store. I mean, obviously, there was a hope that we'd have a more or less normal school year. I think, um, you know, the Delta variant has kind of uh, scuttled those plans. But look, as I say, it's crucial for kids to be in school. And, you know, the the learning, the socialization, all of it. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, this whole situation, the pandemic, the disruption, all of it, it's, it's really had a real impact on kids' mental health. And so I think we need to recognize that both in terms of the decisions we make regarding school and in-person learning, but also how we approach in-person learning. And there's probably a way for, you know, the system to, to address, recognize and address uh, some of these mental health challenges. So joining us to talk more about some of those issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Kelly Schwartz, a registered psychologist, also a associate professor, school and applied child psychology at the University of Calgary. Dr. Schwartz, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. yeah thanks, Rob. Good to be with you again uh So your thoughts as we get set for uh, another school year amid this pandemic and you know obviously we learned some lessons for how things went last year, but uh, are we are we in a better position now in terms of shaping policy and understanding what what kids need and what they've gone through?
1: yeah so interesting with your opening comments there i uh, our, our home backs right on to two schools um here in northwest calgary so it was uh i was watching the faces of parents in particular but kids too as they were making their way you know across the school grounds to schools and um I can tell you there was lots of excitement. The kids were, you know, at least you know, uh, from a physical perspective, seemed to be really happy to be getting back to school. Um, but not uh, 15 minutes before I joined you, I was just on the phone with one of my colleagues at a, at a school division here in Alberta, um, and uh, and yeah, they. I I, I I asked them. I said, "How are you feeling this year compared to last September?" and uh they said you know we we, we're actually this this fall is a little bit even less settled than last year and i'm like wow here we are you know over a year into this and we've still got you know schools trying to do their best but they are they're literally you know making things up as best they can and with the best information they've got as they go along so yeah it's a you know even though we're into kind of year two school year of this um it's still very unsettled for sure.
2: It is. So what's been the impact on kids? And, you know, I suppose it's, it's been in many different ways, you know, just you yeah. know, obviously the uncertainty of, of the pandemic, the disruption in learning, all of it. But what, what do you see as the big impact?
1: Yeah, so we were privileged to work with, uh, partner with four school divisions here in, uh, in Alberta, two in Calgary and two in Edmonton, and we followed a sample of um, uh, over 1,500 12- uh, to 18-year-olds throughout last school year. And, And at four different times during last school year, we asked them a whole bunch of questions about, you know, how are they feeling about the pandemic and the health effects? How are they feeling about, you know, their social and educational lives? We asked them questions about their their behavioral and mental health um, and then we asked them about their resiliency because we wanted to know okay, given all the you know uh, adversity that they're experiencing how you know what resources do they have so thumbnail sketch on this, and we 've got tons of data i'm happy to share uh, our our website with you afterwards so your listeners can can go and check it out but um Interestingly so we we were able to compare okay what how did they do from September through December through March and June and in particular we're comparing how was September compared to June of last school year and and not surprisingly we saw you know an increase in concern over things like you know family stress um concerns over social maintaining social ties throughout the school year um we found that that kids you know uh, and I call them kids, uh, 12 to 18 year olds. Students were, were really, um, you know, feeling the pinch, but it, it's interesting how it followed the wave of what was happening during the school year. So recall that in December, we went back to full, you know, school closures, back to online learning. So,
3: um,
1: stress and, and mental health concerns and social concerns were highest in December. Um, they kind of leveled off again, you know, in March and then in june when as you said when that delta variant really started to pick up speed um, in terms of its kind of apparent effects we saw changes happening there too now interestingly though the stress levels that we saw you know change from september to june last year they went from about 24 percent being kind of in the critical range of stress meaning these are kids that it's affecting their you know their sleep patterns they're they're worried a lot they're showing some some anxious uh it's influencing their thought patterns like it's um uh you know they're they're being more distractible but we only saw that go from well not only but 24 to 30 percent of students were in that kind of critical range so the positive side is that 70% 70% of students weren't in that but you can imagine for the 30% of 12 to 18 year olds who were in that this was a you know they were ex- experiencing quite significant disruptions and, and when we asked about their mental health too we measured uh what we call a negative affect so how did this you know change their um you know their levels of sadness their levels of worry their levels of nervousness and again we found that that um over the course of the school year there were more kids who were falling into kind of what we call high risk range so in june this this um uh there was about 25% of our student sample that were in this high risk range so again this is now not just kind of an irritant or kind of a you know um, that this was a bother. This was affecting them in multiple places you know in their life. so it was yeah. it likely impacted their their family relationships, their self-confidence, um, their safety, you know their their worry about that. But again, the flip side is is that seventy five percent of the kids in our sample were saying yeah it's it's a concern, it bothers me, but they were dealing with it okay so we've kind of got these two two different bands of students kind of going through the school year um, that that really showed itself you know to change over the course of the school year and it did get you know the numbers got a little bit worse um, but overwhelming overwhelmingly the majority of students were coping okay with with all the change that was happening.
2: Interesting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it seems that, you know, inevitably there's there's that conflict in in, you know, risk versus risk. And I I think ideally, you know, we could protect kids both in terms of their physical health from from uh, viruses and protect their mental health. But maybe inevitably we're in a situation where we got to sort of stack up those risks against one another, don't we? And say, okay, well, you know, if we do do this, then it's going to impact that side. And and which is, is going to be worse?
1: Yeah and as you said in the opening the the change to students being able to engage in you know non-school activities so clubs and yeah. sports and lessons and church groups and all that sort of stuff that that was the part that um you know, as frustrating as the school uh, situation was, and we did find that for some kids, and, and one of the questions we asked later on in our in our survey was if there was any students in our sample who had had a previous diagnosis, like a, you know, like a learning issue or a cognitive issue or a psychological issue, and for those kids who said yes, and that was about sixteen percent of our sample who who participated in our survey who said they had a previous diagnosis, when we asked them, you know, did did your symptoms get worse? Did did how your you know issues um, uh, impact you over the school year? Did they get worse? And we found that yeah, about fifty percent of those kids who had that previous diagnosis, they said that yeah, their experience got got quite a bit worse um, in terms of their symptoms. Like it really so not you know my 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 um, general answer to how kids are doing uh is is saying well it depends because kids that had that previous diagnosis families who who had employment losses who had a parent you know lose their job or had you know income depleted we saw a different experience for those kids we saw differences in gender um female students in particular in some of our markers of mental health were uh about you know uh, twice as bad as were, females, uh, were males in terms of their experiences, and then also older youth. So the 15 to 18-year-olds tended to rate some of their social and psychological experiences more negatively than did the younger youth, the 12 to 14-year-olds. So there's there's differences in experiences on how kids are are dealing with uh the pandemic based on a lot of moving parts and variables uh in, in and around this so it's yeah. it went you know when i get asked how are kids doing i say well it, it depends what kids you're talking about because it's not just kind of a general hey here's what all youth are experiencing uh there there's some differences happening there
2: yeah it's true and i mean you know even even for my son who's a teenager and you know in when when they shut down in school learning i don't think that that bothered him too much you know it was right. convenient in some ways to you know do that at home instead but but man right. you know when hockey got shut down that hit hard right sure, and you know sure. so having those those extracurricular activities those social components it's so crucial to these kids lives
1: Well, and, uh, being a hockey sports parent myself, um, even though my kids are, uh, are a little older now, it wasn't only the change for the, for the kids, but the parents, the families lost that, that extra social contact too. They lost those networks of support and connection. And so everybody was feeling it at a family system level. It just wasn't, you know, the individual, um, you know, child level. And so that's really important for us to understand how, Keeping schools open uh, and keeping in-person learning open also, you know, impacts families because now parents have more contact with teachers. They have more contact with their kids' parents, you know, friends of their uh, parents of, uh, of their kids, too. So they've got that social networking that happens. So you do have that kind of you know that that resource that that is truly a you know a family experience not just an individual child experience too absolutely
2: yeah so in terms of schools and and I mean obviously a recognizing all of this but in terms of you know addressing mental health either you know through the curriculum or finding other ways of ensuring that you know we're communicating to kids we're giving kids an opportunity to talk about how they're doing is it something that that schools do they have a role to play in that
1: I mean, they absolutely do. I'm always cautious, though, that we don't, you know, make our schools and our teachers in particular the be-all and end-all for all of us. They can't. They can't. We can't keep adding to their, you know, to their load. But they have, you know, uh, and and we've got reports both, you know, uh, academic studies coming out now looking at teacher, uh, experiences and, and the, the changes and, and, um, you know, adaptation that they did. They're doing extraordinarily well in terms of how they're trying to, you know, monitor kids, you know, physical health, monitor their social health and monitor their psychological health. And those three are, they're not mutually exclusive. They all go to together. But yeah, we, I, I certainly am a believer that schools, can be kind of the hub for where we both, you know, watch how kids are doing, um, intervene and assess. Of course, my area in school psychology, that's such a big part of what we do is, is um, you know, uh, making sure we do, you know, uh, standardized assessment with kids to, to find out, you know, how's their learning going? How is their Uh, cognitive functioning. How is their social and emotional functioning? So that's such a big part that is done in schools as well. But then also I think what's going to be interesting to see is over the next, you know, months and years is if schools can also become, you know, a hub for the provision of intervention and, uh, and sources of of strategic programming and support for students. They're doing their best right now, but we, you know, I'm a huge advocate for saying, um, like I said, this is not dumping into the classroom or dumping onto the teachers. But how do we get resources into the schools mm-hmm. that become so the schools can become are truly a community resource for that child and that family? And but do it in a respectful way, do it in a confidential way. But rather than having families have to take their kids, you know, I mean, we're we're blessed here in Calgary to have you know a world-renowned children's hospital uh, right here, but not all families in Alberta have that for them that's a two-hour drive or that's a you know that's a major um ask of them so how do we get resources into schools through like alberta health services and, and um, uh, other ministries i think that's really important for us to investigate we've got a chance to do that now and it's an opportunity that maybe we didn't have pre COVID. So let's let's take the opportunity now to to try and experiment with some of these novel ways of bringing resources to kids and families. Um I'm a big supporter of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, speaking of resources, uh you mentioned the website uh that you wanted to put yeah. out there. So, so why don't you yeah. do that?
1: Absolutely. And I want to actually highlight a couple um, uh, to you. Uh, our study website is uh, covidstudentwellbeing.com. So covidstudentwellbeing, no hyphen in wellbeing.com. That's where you've got all of our the results of our um, uh, four-wave study that we did uh, in the last school year. I want to highlight, too, uh, um, uh, a local organization uh, through Alberta Health Services here called mentalhealthliteracy.org. If you've, you know, if any of your listeners have have children that they're, you know, they're wondering about, they're wanting to, you know, learn more about mental health and child development and when do you, you know, what's good mental health? What does that look like? What does mental distress look like? What does a mental health problem look like? That's a great resource to go to, so it's called mentalhealthliteracy.org. And then finally for those families who may feel like yeah, I need to get this checked out. I need to get some expert uh, consult or opinion. Again, I would really um, encourage families to ch- to use the Access Mental Health uh, link, and you can find that through uh, the HS website, but it's called Access Mental Health. And that's, you know, that doesn't hurt to call. Talk to somebody. You know, if you feel like you're concerned about your kids well being and you you've done all you can and you've but but you really feel like you want to get some uh some extra support, that's a great place to go as well.
2: All right. Fantastic stuff. Dr. Schwartz, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this.
1: Thanks for the invite,
2: Rob. Take care. All the best. You as well. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Dr. Kelly Schwartz at the University of Calgary. He's a, a child psychologist, uh, also an associate professor, uh, school in applied child psychology at the University of Calgary. Some great insight and some, some good resources there, too. So uh, covidstudentwellbeing.com, mentalhealthliteracy.org are the two websites he mentioned. Off so the top in the hour, though, here I wanted to talk about the situation in Afghanistan and what it is we're leaving behind. And I think, unfortunately, we're, we're leaving a lot behind—not just Canadians, not just those who want to flee—but uh, obviously, I think we're leaving behind. We're we're sacrificing a lot of the gains that were made in Afghanistan. In particular, what this all means for the women of Afghanistan. So I wanted to, to bring into the conversation uh, somebody who's obviously been very connected to the situation in Afghanistan for many years. Uh, Dr. Lauren Oates is uh, with Royal Roads University, the School of Humanitarian Studies, uh, and also is Executive Director of Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan, uh, much more at uh, cw 4 Afghan. Laura Notes. great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
4: Thanks very much for having me.
2: Let me just get your thoughts on just kind of in, in more, more general terms here, what's uh, unfolded over the last uh, week or couple of weeks here, just how quickly Kabul fell, uh, our inadequate, I, I think, response in, in getting folks out of there. It's just it's been a real tragedy in so many respects.
4: Yeah, it absolutely has. I have to say that the last couple of weeks has been surreal. Um, Even when you're accustomed to working in a war zone, this has just been something else altogether. And I think many of us observing the situation, we just had higher hopes of the international community that that turned out to be um, in vain. And um, with Canada, what we've seen in particular, an evacuation mission that started too late and ended too early and was extremely dependent on on the Americans. Um, Of course, other countries were in that boat, too. But I think Canada in particular, because we had closed the embassy, we didn't have troops on the ground initially. um, So the Americans were calling the shot and they prioritized the evacuation of their own their own citizens and green card holders first. And that didn't leave a lot of space um, at the airport for Canadians. So the overwhelming majority of people on the evacuation list were left behind and they're still in Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, I mean it, it seemed like for for too long we just sort of ignored what was happening or ignored what was coming. I mean it was was that part of the problem here just how slow we were to react.
4: Yes, definitely. Um, I I admit myself, I did not see the fall of Kabul coming. Um, All the intel that we were getting said that it wouldn't happen, that um, even cities would be unlikely to fall, that the Taliban were only capable of holding the countryside Um, about three weeks ago, before any major cities fell, when they started to capture rural districts. There was one rural district that they took with just four fighters and so the expectation was that the afghan army would retake that territory when they had a chance to reconstitute and they had been caught off guard because the americans actually withdrew earlier it was expected that they would all leave by september but they left well before then they were almost all but gone in in june and that took the afghan army by surprise so um, everyone was hopeful that they would catch up and they would be able to at least protect the cities But in a very, very short course of time, cities fell one by one, and um, it was kind of the perfect storm. And one of the tactics of the Taliban was as they captured a city— the first thing they would do is go to the local prison and break open the prison and get out all their fighters. And indeed, the people responsible for the terrible attack that occurred on Kabul airport a few days ago, those were ISIS fighters who had been in prison and had been released by by the Taliban. So um, they were able to make up their numbers um, and grow their forces and, and take the city. So it took all of us by surprise, but there were so many opportunities for Uh, The international community, the US and all of its allies to have intervened so that it didn't come to this point where all that we're left with is a rescue mission, just trying to get people out and then leaving the country to essentially collapse.
2: Well, yeah, and I mean, even for your organization, I mean, it's, it's, I would imagine, been quite a shift in some of the work you've been doing in the past, uh, you know, training teachers and, you know, providing classes for, for women, these sorts of things, to now almost uh, a rescue mission of your own. What, what, what kind of work uh, have you and, and, and your partners on the ground been able to do in recent weeks?
4: Well, what we were doing was delivering education programming and, um, you know, having started this work when the Taliban were in power the first time, we had seen two decades of really, really significant progress. And and we don't think that was a story well told because Afghanistan, when it does make it into the media headlines in the West, it tends to be about kidnappings and bombs and so on. But on the ground, there was this dramatic, it was a, just a completely different country than it was under under the Taliban. And and so the kind of work we were doing was investing in human capital, training teachers, sending girls to school, distributing scholarships, and we were really seeing that pay off. So it's a total turnaround for us now to be in the position of trying to help women and girls just survive, uh, let alone ever even be able to think about going back to school. But I will say that because I know that we were capable of working in this country when it was governed by the Taliban in the past, we will be capable of doing that again. Um, so we will be there. We are committed to deliver. Um, and we will probably also be pivoting programming to serve the enormous community of, uh, Afghan refugees of the, the millions of people expected to, um, to flee the country. So, uh, and, and fortunately some of our programs already had a virtual component. We have, um, Online learning and um, and programs delivered through technology, so those programs are running uninterrupted, and for others it 'll be a transition
2: well how, how dramatic is this this change going to be we We know what the Taliban represents. We know what Taliban rule in the past looked like, and I, I know certainly there 's almost this p r offensive from the Taliban to suggest that somehow they 've changed they 're different i mean that that seems questionable, to to put it mildly, but what what does this mean, do you think, in practice here now uh, for women in Afghanistan?
4: Questionable is definitely the right term. Um, It's a Mm rebranding campaign. Mm -hmm. It's been effective to some extent, unbelievably so. I think think because it, it aligns to the wishful thinking, it would be easy for us to wash our hands of Afghanistan and believe that the Taliban won't be so bad and, and turn our backs in Afghanistan. But I think that this is temporary. They are very aware that the world's eyes are on them right now, but that the world's eyes will not stay. And they'll revert back to their usual behavior as soon as the, the cameras are off and the observers are gone. But one thing that gives me some hope is that this is a very different Afghanistan than the one that they took control of in 1996. This is an Afghanistan that is integrated with the world, um, whereas in 1996, it was one of the most isolated places on Earth. There was no Internet. There were not even phone lines. There were not working banks. Um, This is a place that is connected, and it's harder to hide what they're doing. And. People have had 20 years of being able to go to school and have uh, free press and freedom of mobility, and and they're resisting. And what was really remarkable was uh, a few days after the Taliban had taken power in Kabul, people were actually protesting in the streets. There was even a women's protest in Kabul, and there were images of these women face-to-face with Taliban police, and they were not budging. And in other rural provinces, people taking down the Taliban flag and replacing it with the previous government's flag. So you didn't see anything like this the previous time. So I think it won't be as easy for them to impose their rule as it was before. Um, they're, they're simply facing a much more um, free and modernized population than before. And women who are very, very brave and absolutely unwilling to relinquish their rights that they, they won with, uh, with much effort.
2: You wrote a piece this week, um, you know, and and certainly I think more more critical of of the U.S. government, both the the previous president and the current president for, you know, some of the things they've said about trying to to preserve some of these gains or or to not leave behind a chaotic situation. And in fact, that's exactly what we've got here. So to what extent can we blame the Americans or I suppose by extension to some extent blame ourselves for, for what's happened here, how this has all gone down?
4: Yeah, all, all of the above. There's kind of a hierarchy of blame. And um, I mean, I, th- I think it's important to acknowledge that the, the first to blame are the Taliban. They are the ones who have had this campaign of violence against civilians more than anyone else over the past 20 years. The terrorism that they've unleashed on the country has just stolen so many lives and, and disrupted so many lives. And then they took power by, by force. It, it was a it was a bloody coup. Um, so So they're responsible for their own actions and they're to blame firstly. But immediately down the list next is the United States, because it was only possible for the Taliban to take power in the fashion that they did because of US actions and a succession of US actions. There were so many opportunities to change course, um, but I think, you know, the things started to go wrong when the Americans signed this agreement with the Taliban in 2020, um, without the Afghan government, without any representation from the Afghan people, but making promises on behalf of both the Afghan government and the Afghan people like that, you know, 5,000 prisoners, Taliban prisoners would be released and so on. Um, So that really helped legitimize the taliban and that gave them a lot of confidence and their confidence just grew from there all the while that they were not participating in in the peace process in a serious way at all and getting away with it um and and so i think that's where things started to go wrong and just got worse from there and even when there was a change in administration in in the united states um, president Biden, you know not only maintained this policy Um, against the the advice of um, of people around him in many cases but um, he made it worse he accelerated the withdrawal um, despite all of the evidence that this could very possibly put the Taliban in power, um, and and that's exactly what happened, so they're responsible. And then third down the line is is their allies who went along with that. And and I'm ashamed to say that that includes Canada. Um, we put ourselves in a position where we're very dependent on on American policy and actions. And um, I'm not sure that this is this is uh, a policy that we'd want to align ourselves to. Um, you know, when when we look back on this historically, if we'll feel proud of, uh, of what we did in Afghanistan, um, which is, which is walked, we walked yeah. and there were so many opportunities to have th- done it differently.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. We'll leave it there. Laura Oates, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this.
4: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: All the best. Uh, there you go. That's Dr. Laura Oates, Executive Director of Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan, CW4W, afghan.ca. Welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you here on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is our number. Of course, we're in the midst of a federal election. Uh, Once we get that out of the way on September 20th, I guess we can zero in a little bit more on the upcoming municipal election. And there's going to be a lot we're voting on, not just mayor and council and school board trustees. Obviously, we've got some provincial issues that are going to be on the ballot. And there's also the question in Calgary uh, of whether to once again fluoridate our water. Now, We've been through this many times in this city. Numerous uh, votes, numerous different decisions. And so once again, uh, city council has decided to not make a decision and once again, leave it up to the voters. Now, I personally don't think that it should be subject to another plebiscite. I think city council should have just made a decision. If councilors believe that we do need to fluoridate our water, then just make the decision and do it. So anyway, it's going to be left to the voters to decide once again, perhaps until we decide to do all of this all over again at some point in the future. But what's been the impact of removing fluoride from the water? It's been 10 years uh, since uh, the, the fluoride was removed from drinking water in Calgary. Now, in Edmonton, uh, fluoridation has remained. It's, it's been constant there. So we've got some interesting case studies here. We've got Edmonton with fluoride in the water, Calgary without and so a new study out of the University of Calgary has used that as the starting point for an in-depth study looking at the impact. And it finds that dental health among children in Calgary has suffered due to the removal of fluoride from the water. So I think it's, it's important to to talk about this and understand this, I guess, if we're being asked to to make this important decision in the municipal election in October. Joining us uh, to talk more about the uh, findings of this study. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Lindsay McLaren, uh, professor of the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary and the primary investigator on this study. Dr. McLaren, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
5: Hello. Thanks for having me.
2: So like I say, I mean, the the basic parameters of this study are fairly straightforward. We've got uh, Calgary that does not have fluoride in the water, Edmonton that does, but you know, how do we drill down, so to speak, and, and really try to understand the differences between the two communities and why they exist?
5: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So you, you described it very well, in fact. Uh, thanks, thanks for that. So with this type of research where you're studying populations, populations are, are messy and dynamic and there's lots of different things going on. It's, it's called an observational study. Mm-hmm. And so what you need to do is just think carefully about the different factors that um, might be uh, contributing to differences in dental health and then try to measure and assess those to, to the best extent that you can. So, for example, uh, part of our study, so, so we did the dental health assessments of kids and we, we um, were able to estimate uh, the number of kids with dental cavities, for example, and we found this fairly sizable difference between Calgary and Edmonton kids, um, but um kids in Calgary might be quite different from kids in Edmonton in fact of course right. of course they are um and so one way to try to understand that is to um actually ask families to provide some information about their circumstances so uh dental health behaviors um sociodemographic information um uh, diet uh, if, uh, expo- um, you know access to a dentist all, all those types of things, and then we can look at whether or the extent to which the two populations differ, and we can statistically factor those out and see if the differences in dental health remain.
2: Right. So you're trying as best you can to sort of compare apples to apples here, kids of a similar age, to try to, to you know, correct for all of these potentially uh, different factors like socioeconomic, uh, like uh, hygiene habits, and, you know, diet habits, all of that. So you're trying as best you can to control for all of this, right?
5: Exactly.
2: And so given all of that, then, what, what does this study tell us about the differences between kids in the two cities?
5: Hmm. So it it, uh, it tells us that the um, the the dental health is is actually quite different in the two the two samples. So as you say, we had uh, grade two uh, school children in each city, a, po- a large population based sample, um, whom we recruited through the school systems, and we found that, for example, the prevalence of dental cavities, so the proportion of kids who have at least one cavity, um, was was uh, quite a bit higher in in cal- Calgary than, than in Edmonton. So specifically it was around uh, 65% in Calgary and around 55% in Edmonton. Uh-huh. So high in both places but a fairly big gap and that gap has gotten wider um, as time has passed.
2: Right because there was some similar research done I think it was what seven or eight years ago right? <laughs>
5: Uh, so it was pub so that was my group as well that was uh, published yeah. in 2016 seventeen yes
2: okay so the the so yeah as you say then the 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 gap is is wider now than it was than it was then Yes interesting so to what extent then can we ascribe the the fluoridation um issue as as uh, a deciding or definitive factor here?
5: Mhm mhm so so again it it's a matter of of really um trying to think about what other factors might explain um the difference and trying to trying to rule those out mm-hmm. um and so we you know we we did we took a number of steps to try to do that um it's not uh it's not an exper like an experiment um so so you can't um you know, randomly allocate kids to one condition or another and, and force everything to be equal between the two groups. That That's not how this kind of research works. Right. So the best you can do is just be very thoughtful about what else might be going on and try to measure and account for those factors.
2: Right. And I mean, this, this would also dovetail with other research that, that tells us about the, the benefits of fluoridation. So we know that it can have an impact when it comes to, to cavities. So, you know, that, that has to you know, be factored in as we, we assess the findings here, doesn't it?
5: Yes, that, that's an excellent point. You, you always want to look at the body of literature as a whole, um, and, and consistency among studies in different uh, settings is, is an important part of that. Um, the, the issue with uh, fluoridation cessation, or well, any element of this, but fluoridation cessation in particular is that whether or the extent to which it has an impact is probably going to depend on what other kinds of factors are, are going on. So. For For example, if we had a very robust dental public health um, service, or if we had universal dental care as part of our dental health system, or if we had um, lower socioeconomic inequities in our society, then it may matter less whether we Mm -hmm. have fluoridation or not. Um, But in Calgary and in Alberta, we have, you know, a very small, very important, but very small dental public health program. Dental care is in the private sector, so it's quite expensive and out of reach for many. And we have significant um, socioeconomic inequities in our society. So it's, it's reasonable to predict that fluoridation uh, would matter in such a setting, and our, our results bore, bore that out.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because clearly this, this illustrates the benefit, but I think at the same time, it also illustrates that it's not a panacea. I mean, Edmonton has fluoridation, but obviously, you know, th- th- this this is still a challenge in Edmonton, right? So it doesn't make those other issues go away.
5: Absolutely. No, that's that's an excellent point. It's not a panacea.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, Let's talk about cavities, though, because you know we tend to think of it as you know something kids are going to get, and you go to the dentist, the dentist fixes the cavity, you know, no problem. We we tend not to think of cavities as a big deal, but I mean, well, a they're preventable, but but why is it important, and what what is the concern about you know having numbers higher than they need to be?
5: Hmm. Yeah, a- excellent question, and I do hear that one quite quite a bit. Um, so so dental cavities uh, can be painful. If you've had one, you may know. <laughs> um, right. And in kids, uh, you know, having a, a mouth that hurts uh, can, can impair learning and ability to concentrate and so on, which is which is quite important. Um, most people don't know this, but across Canada for really young kids, so under age six, uh, dental cavities is actually the number one reason for day surgery, and almost all of those procedures are performed under general anesthetic, so that's very serious for, for very young kids. Um, and dental health uh, in childhood is very predictive of dental health in adulthood. So so the problems don't stop when when the baby teeth um, fall out. Um, and as you said as well, um, it, it is preventable. So so why wouldn't we try to find a way to prevent it?
2: Yeah. Some important points. Uh, we'll leave it there. Dr. McLaren, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it.
5: Thank you. It's a pleasure. All Bye right, now. All the best.
2: Take care. That is uh, Dr. Lindsay McLaren, professor of the Cummings School of Medicine at University of Calgary, primary investigator uh, on this study. So they said that the findings are pretty clear here, uh, that ending fluoridation has had a negative effect on children's dental health. There's, there's clearly a worse situation here than in Edmonton, and it's a gap that has grown in recent years. Now, again, it's not as though things are perfect in Edmonton, and so challenges still remain. This is not a panacea, as she mentioned, but it can have a benefit. Now, obviously, part of the reason why the decision was made to remove it was because of cost. And I do think it's fair to do a cost-benefit analysis. So this makes it pretty clear that there is some benefit. So to what extent can we realize that benefit? Can we quantify that in, in, in dollar terms, in terms of the benefits that we're realizing? And does it justify the cost of putting fluoride back in the water? Or if we're able to at least quantify those benefits, and also look at the cost of doing that, what are the costs of other interventions? What are the costs of trying to make uh, dental care more accessible to certain families, or just making sure that you know they have what they need at home? Uh, and in terms of you know basic supplies, in terms of knowledge, in terms of all of that, uh, so that maybe more of these issues can be taken care of at home.
0: We will grow the economy so that we can get back to balance in a responsible and equitable way without cuts. That is our plan. Okay, that's Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole today talking about the Conservative
2: plan to balance the budget. And no, look, Aaron O'Toole's not saying the budget is going to balance itself. Uh, Certainly, I think that, you know, the Conservatives are focused on some discipline when it comes to spending and relying quite heavily though on on economic growth but the conservatives say that we can get to a balanced budget without making cuts in federal programs so i wanted to to focus a little bit more on some of these issues uh, around balanced budgets around the debt that all of these deficits are, are adding to and uh, whether federal spending needs to be reined in so it's you know again it's, it's certainly something that's being talked about on the campaign trail. I think outside of the conservatives, though, the focus seems to be on how much more should we spend and where should we spend it. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of that, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Jake Foss, uh, Senior Economist though the Center for Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. Jake, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
3: Thanks very much for having me all
2: well and you co-wrote an op-ed uh, the other day saying look you know we we need some focus we need to hear the leaders talking about spending and deficits and and debt are we starting to see signs of that
3: yeah well like you said you know deficits and debt have certainly surged during the covid 19 pandemic across canada um, but you know despite this um, you know deficits and debt haven't been discussed much at all um you know it's starting a little bit now um, during the current campaign but This is obviously a critically important policy issue. Um, You know, we've seen a a recent report projecting the federal government is not on track to balance the budget until 2070 um, without changes in spending or tax policies. Um, So we think this is certainly an issue worthy of more discussion on the campaign trail. Um, And we certainly invite discussion from all the different political parties on this on this important issue.
2: I mean, not necessarily to single out the Conservatives. I mean, they, they are talking about this today and, and wanting to make balanced budgets a priority, which is encouraging. But I don't know. I mean, do you, you buy this notion that, you know, with some spending restraint and some economic growth that we can get back to balance?
3: You yeah, know, well, I think part of the problem, too, is, is um, you know, timelines, too. Certainly, you know, we see with the, the Conservatives, uh, they're talking about not being able to balance the budget for the better part of a decade or, or the Liberals right. uh, haven't had a, a target date yet. Um, and we really have to think about the costs of these things in the long term, too, and what that means. Um, if you have rising interest rates, your interest payments are going up. At the same time, you're also deferring tax increases to the future to pay for a lot of today's spending. Um, and then at the same time, um, you know, it, you actually have to have a plan for what you're going to do on the spending side in the long term. Um, and then, God forbid, there's a you know bump in the road um, in, terms of, in terms of another recession or another external event that also throws your economic growth rate off. Um, you know, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of potential issues and risks on the horizon um, if you're having a very long timeline for that actual plan to balance the budget. Um, so there's a lot of concerns with all the different political parties in terms of their plans right now for, for balanced budgets, whether they're stating them or, you know, in, in real terms or not. <laughs>
2: Right. And, and you know, certainly governments have pointed to historically low interest rates as kind of a justification for all of this borrowing. But, you know, when that, that borrowing gets as, as much as it is, even with low interest rates, we, we still do pay a considerable amount each year in terms of interest costs. And you would alluded to it, if we see interest rates go up, which may be how we, we deal with inflation, for example, that's going to make those costs even bigger, isn't it?
3: Well, certainly, I mean, right now, you know, we have the federal and provincial governments spending roughly $50 billion annually on just interest payments alone, and that's with historically low interest rates. So if, if those start to increase um, in the future, um, that's going to leave fewer resources for things like government programs, things that we care about, health care, education, and social services. Um, and if that amount grows in the future because interest rates or are increasing or debt is rising at the same time, um, then this is money that doesn't go to things that we want Um, And at the same time, you know, we recently did an analysis where we said, hey, you know, we do have historically low interest rates right now. But if interest rates even return to the levels we saw in 2019, right before the the COVID pandemic, um, you know, we would actually see about a 60 percent increase in interest costs at the federal level. Um, So, you know, there's a real tangible cost um, to all of this. And it's certainly a risk that we need to keep in mind. And all political parties should definitely pay attention to interest costs in particular.
2: Yeah. How much of a structural deficit do we have, because certainly there was a whole lot of what was intended to be, I guess, temporary emergency spending and some of that's starting to wind down. But, you know, the, the government going into this election had talked about, you know, major new ongoing social programs like pharmacare care and child care. So what, what's the imbalance we have right now between spending and revenue?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, there's certainly some justification for for temporary spending on things, you know, like healthcare, or border security measures, um, while we're dealing with. You know COVID 19 for the foreseeable future Um, but you know new programs particularly that are permanent or new initiatives that will add billions of dollars in expenses is really where the issue arises in creating that structural deficit in the longer term Um, so you know new programs either require tax increases imposed on canadians today or the government has to borrow money to pay for and poses the tax increases at a later date and that can burden future generations of canadians Um, So, you know, it's really about asking questions about the costs of different campaign proposals, um, having a robust discussion over what is necessary for emergency spending, um, and also keeping an eye on permanent initiatives that have little to do with COVID, um, because that's where we can really get into sticky situations in the long term.
2: I mean, I suppose we'd be more honest of, you know, the parties to say we need higher spending to say, and and here's the taxes we're going to raise to pay for all of that, of course that has consequences and it's all premised on the notion that this is all necessary and justified spending is there a lot of room do you think though on the other side jake to to make cuts in ottawa
3: yeah it's a good question i mean it's certainly having a discussion of kind of what you do um you know if if there's a consequence if you take action and there's also a consequence if there is inaction um you know one thing we always look at is the 1990s for example obviously we're nowhere near where we were um, in the 1990s today um, but, you know, I, lo- I look at the example of the federal liberal government under Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin back in the 1990s. They had to make difficult decisions because they had a near-debt crisis. Um, you know, they had interest payments basically consuming a third of all federal revenue. Um, but, you know, they chose not to pass the burden of debt down to the next generation. They had, you know, an entire review of government programs. Um, they had to make these difficult de- decisions um, and not pass this decision down to another government. Um, So I I think it's going to be important for whatever political party, um, you know, wins the election to have a credible plan post-COVID to try to balance budgets, pay down debt and balance the needs of citizens. It's not going to be easy, but it's certainly a necessary um, decision in the long term.
2: Well, and yeah, I mean, part of it is, look, there was I think there was an appetite for that at the time. And maybe a lot of it comes down to to public perception or, or public priorities or what it is we want from the current or the next government. Um, is it your sense that, you know, that Canadians still care about these issues, that this still is a priority? I mean, I, I hope that it is. But what's your sense? Yeah, I think, you
3: know, there's there's obviously mixed feelings out there because, you know, there's a lot of fallout right now from COVID. So people are certainly okay. struggling um, on on these aspects, but I think, you know, it, it's certainly a, you know a longer term discussion, because um, at, at the end of the day, it will f- affect Canadians, particularly younger generations of Canadians. If you have right. those tax increases in the future um, to pay for today's spending and, and deficits, um, there's certainly a longer term consequence for all Canadians, but particularly those that are you know between the ages of 16 to 30, you know, in particular. Um, Especially to cover those interest payments, to pay for um, today's spending in particular. Um, So, you know, I I do think this is an issue that's at the top of mind for a lot of Canadians, um, because you do have to think about, you know, not only what are the costs, you know, in the next four years um, over the course of of the the election and and the government, um, but also longer than that. You know, what are what are we going to be facing ten years from now, fifteen years, twenty years? Um, You know, I think that's that's top of mind for a lot of Canadians uh, in terms of what's in the future.
2: Absolutely. So some important decisions uh, in, in the coming years for the next government. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Jake, much more is mentioned for org. Appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks very much for having me on my best. That's Jake Foss at the uh, Fraser Institute. He is the uh, senior economist with the Center for Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute. So his thoughts on, you know, why this needs to be a priority, what we're hearing from the various political parties. Let me just give you a chance to hear a little bit more of Aaron O'Toole, conservative leader, talking about this on the campaign trail today. That yes, they want to make it a priority to balance the budget, but he says they're not going to do it overnight and says that he believes it can be done without making cuts. Here's what he said.
0: As a father of two, I want to leave a better Canada for my children. Business as usual isn't good enough. Canadians need more. Canada needs more. Only Canada's Conservatives have a plan to get spending under control and balance the budget. Canada's recovery plan will secure Canada's finances by adopting a responsible measured and disciplined approach to balancing the budget over the next decade our plan will rein in deficits to address inflation and the rising cost of necessities for canadian families once we've got the recovery underway we will take a responsible and compassionate approach to winding down emergency pandemic supports as more people get back to work you're pledging to balance the budget in 10 years in which areas specifically are you planning cuts Canada's recovery plan will get the country back to work in all sectors of the economy and in all regions of the country we're the only party that wants to get everyone back to work we will help highly affected sectors caught by this pandemic so that those jobs are preserved we will grow the economy so that we can get back to balance in a responsible and equitable way without cuts that is our plan It's why we launched it on the first full day of this campaign. Every Canadian family deserves a recovery.
2: Okay, so there's Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole talking about economic recovery and talking about how they are planning to balance the budget. So, I mean, is this a priority for you in terms of what you want to see from the next government? Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network, part of our Decision Canada coverage, uh, focusing today on the issue of the opioid overdose crisis. And uh, today does happen to be uh, International Overdose Awareness Day. But it has been something, in fairness, that, that the political parties have been addressing on the federal campaign trail. Frankly, it's an issue that, you know, we need the federal government to act on, certainly the provincial government to act on. Even municipal governments have a role to play as well. Uh, today, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau was asked about the crisis and said if we elected, his government would treat this as a health issue as opposed to a legal issue and also pledged to work with provinces to address the problem.
1: Can I get you to commit today that you would decriminalize and legalize
6: opioid use? We have moved forward significantly on measures around safe supply uh, in the uh, I- to fight the opioid a- epidemic, which uh, includes things like allowing for uh, prescription of opioids, uh, better uh, access. Uh, to supply of opioids for people with addiction problems, so we're treating it as a medical problem. I was pleased to see many other parties, uh, including the Conservatives, talk about the opioid epidemic, but they won't go as far as safe supply. And that is certainly something that we have invested in and will continue to stand for. At the same time, we've seen A number of provinces and a number of places particularly British Columbia very interested in moving forward on some forms of decriminalization and we are absolutely opening open to working with them in a responsible way to move forward it has to be something done right based in science and uh, led by folks on the ground but as a federal government we're willing to work with provinces who are interested in that but I will remind people there is no one silver bullet to counter the opioid epidemic. We need to do many different things from uh, safe consumption sites to safe supply to better funding for frontline workers uh, to treating uh, addiction as a uh, mental and a health issue, not as a criminal justice issue. These are the things this government has done over the past six years. And as you point out, David, there is much more to do.
2: Okay, so there's the answer from uh, Justin Trudeau today. Now, in Edmonton today, there was a march, a rally of the Alberta legislature, uh, calling for government action on this issue. Joining us uh, to talk more about uh, the march and the rally today and you know, what we want to see from, from uh, the federal government as well. I'm pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Petra Schultz, uh, co-founder of the group Moms Stop the Harm, momsstoptheharm.com. Petra, thanks so much for joining us here today. I welcome to the program.
7: Thank you very much for inviting me.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty clear that this problem has has not gone away and it's it's as bad as it's been in in recent years. What what do you think the priority needs to be? What kind of action do we need to see right now?
7: The problem is actually worse than it's ever been. Um, We have four Albertans die every day. And what is really happening is that the province is putting all its eggs in the wrong basket. They're focusing on recovery where people die before they can ever think about or seek recovery. And what we have to do is first keep people alive, which is through harm reduction, but also because... Drugs are so toxic now. We have to move forward and provide people with safe pharmaceutical alternatives. People who need it, provide them with safe pharmaceutical alternatives. You keep them alive and it's a way of connecting people with health services that they can trust.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of this does fall to provincial governments to deal with. And and I think you're right that the current Alberta government uh, doesn't really want a lot to do with any of those kinds of policy responses. Why, Why do you think that is?
7: Well... To me as somebody who's lost their child to an overdose it seems like they don't care about people who use drugs and about their families i can have no other explanation how a government can stand by and have so many people die they also have a single focus on providing recovery and you know i'm all for recovery everybody here today is for recovery but Recovery comes in a spectrum and is different for different people. And also, if we don't make sure that people stay safe and alive, um, it is never an option for them. And we see cuts to harm reduction services like supervised consumption sites and programs that keep people alive. And that is really contributing to the death toll that that we are seeing. Well,
2: that's the thing, right? I mean, we, we know what can save lives, don't we?
7: Oh, we do, we do for sure. Nobody has ever died in a supervised consumption site. But here in Edmonton today, a person who used to work at a site at Boyle Street Community Services, she listed names of people who have died since they have closed, and and she talked about their relationships that the team there, the healthcare team formed with people and how people credited them with keeping them alive, but yet that site is closed and, and it should not. We should expand things that save lives. We should treat people with dignity, with respect, and with kindness in turn, mm-hmm. instead of turning our shoulder.
2: Well, and, and certainly this is a, a toxicity problem, right? A contamination problem that, that's contributing to overdoses. But what about tackling sort of the, you know, the root causes? How, how do we go about that side of it to, to prevent people from, from getting into to these situations in the first place? Is, is there a need for a strategy on that side?
7: Oh, there is important work that needs to be done. There's always a reason why somebody uses substances, and uh, mental health and trauma are huge factors. And we don't provide, still don't provide enough mental health services and and trauma supports when a person is still dealing with that trauma. It's really hard also to expect them to. uh, to stop using substances, because that's really their medicine at that moment. So we really need to expand that. We also need to make sure that um, people have housing, that they have good, stable housing and supports in place. And we need to make sure that people have a stable income. Uh, Today, we also talked about the fact that many people who work in trades uh, that... we lose a lot of tradespeople to overdose, and in there we, we need to make sure that people can talk about it and seek help, uh, seek help and uh, reduce the stigma that is so associated with um, mental health and with substance abuse.
2: Well, we talked about the role the province has to play, but it, you know, it's it's something that kind of transcends jurisdiction. I mean, we, we've got a federal election underway. We'll have a municipal election sure. following that. There's a role for Ottawa to play, isn't there? There's a role for cities to play.
7: There, it, it's all levels of government, really, that we need action from. Uh, and this being a federal election, I urge um, all your listeners to reach out to their candidates and see what are you going to do to address this? This um, this overdose, uh, drug poisoning crisis. We need to ask these questions. What I've seen so far, um, parties touch on it somewhat in their platform, but it's not a priority. And considering that 17 Canadians die every day, it should be a priority.
2: Yeah, it certainly should be. We'll, we'll see uh, what uh, comes of the federal election, the municipal election as yeah. well, and the debate here in Alberta. More is mentioned at com. Petra, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it.
7: Thank you so much. And thank you to your
2: listeners. Bye bye. All the best. That is uh, Petra Schultz, uh, co founder of Mom Stop the Harm. And, you know, I mean, as she alluded to, this is something deeply personal to her. I mean, she lost a child to this, and, and a lot of Albertans have. I think first and foremost, we've got to save lives. You know, counseling, recovery, treatments, all of that is valuable, but it's pretty useless if the person dies. So first and foremost, we have to save lives. First and foremost, we have to want to save lives. We have to have enough compassion to want to save lives because we know how to do it. I think we need to understand what's at the heart of all of this, what's leading people into addiction, so not just how do you get out, but how do you not go in in the first place? And, yeah, ultimately, I mean, I think we need to look at this as, as a contamination issue. I mean, obviously, smoking addiction is, is a health concern. Certainly, it's viewed as a health problem. What we can do to help smokers kick the habit, et cetera. But if we had uh, a problem with contaminated cigarettes and that contamination was killing smokers, you know, by the thousands every year, we would obviously take steps to address that. I mean, smoking will kill you eventually. But that kind of toxicity or contamination, we would definitely do something about it. And ultimately, that's, that's what's killing people right now. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.